Chapter Two, Part Two of The Monk, A Romance. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by James K. White. The Monk, A Romance by Matthew Gregory Lewis. Chapter Two, Part Two. Father, I will never quit these walls alive. Hold, hold, Matilda. What would you do? You are determined. So am I. The moment that you leave me, I plunge this steel in my heart. Holy St. Francis, Matilda, have you your senses? Do you know the consequences of your action? That suicide is the greatest of crimes? That you destroy your soul? That you lose your claim to salvation? that you prepare for yourself everlasting torments. I care not! I care not! She replied passionately. Either your hand guides me to paradise, or my own dooms me to perdition. Speak to me, Ambrosio. Tell me that you will conceal my story, that I shall remain your friend and your companion, or this poniard drinks my blood. As she uttered these last words, she lifted her arm and made a motion as if to stab herself. The friar's eyes followed with dread the course of the dagger. She had torn open her habit, and her bosom was half exposed. The weapon's point rested upon her left breast, and oh, that was such a breast! The moonbeams darting full upon it enabled the monk to observe its dazzling whiteness. His eye dwelt with insatiable avidity upon the beauteous orb. A sensation till then unknown filled his heart with a mixture of anxiety and delight. A raging fire shot through every limb. The blood boiled in his veins, and a thousand wild wishes bewildered his imagination. "'Hold!' he cried, in a hurried, faltering voice. "'I can resist no longer. Stay then, enchantress. Stay for my destruction.' he said, and, rushing from the place, he hastened towards the monastery. He regained his cell, and threw himself upon his couch, distracted, irresolute, and confused. He found it impossible for some time to arrange his ideas. The scene in which he had been engaged had excited such a variety of sentiments in his bosom that he was incapable of deciding which was predominant. He was irresolute what conduct he ought to hold with the disturber of his repose. He was conscious that prudence, religion, and propriety necessitated his obliging her to quit the abbey. But on the other hand, such powerful reasons authorized her stay that he was but too much inclined to consent to her remaining. He could not avoid being flattered by Matilda's declaration and at reflecting that he had unconsciously vanquished an heart which had resisted the attacks of Spain's noblest cavaliers. The manner in which he had gained her affections was also the most satisfactory to his vanity. He remembered the many happy hours which he had passed in Rosario's society, and dreaded that void in his heart which parting with him would occasion. Besides all this, he considered that as Matilda was wealthy, her favor might be of essential benefit to the abbey. "'And what do I risk?' said he to himself. "'By authorizing her stay, may I not safely credit her assertions? 
will it not be easy for me to forget her sex and still consider her as my friend and my disciple surely her love is as pure as she describes had it been the offspring of mere licentiousness would she so long have concealed it in her own bosom would she not have employed some means to procure its gratification she has done quite the contrary she strove to keep me in ignorance of her sex and nothing but the fear of detection and my instances would have compelled her to reveal the secret she has observed the duties of religion not less strictly than myself she has made no attempt to rouse my slumbering passions nor has she ever conversed with me till this night on the subject of love had she been desirous to gain my affections not my esteem she would not have concealed from me her charms so carefully at this very moment i have never seen her face yet certainly that face must be lovely and her person beautiful to judge by her by what i have seen as this last idea passed through his imagination a blush spread itself over his cheek alarmed at the sentiments which he was indulging he betook himself to prayer he started from his couch knelt before the beautiful madonna and entreated her assistance in stifling such culpable emotions he then returned to his bed and resigned himself to slumber he awoke heated and unrefreshed during his sleep his inflamed imagination had presented him with none but the most voluptuous objects matilda stood before him in his dreams and his eyes again dwelt upon her naked breast she repeated her protestations of eternal love threw her arms round his neck and loaded him with kisses he returned them he clasped her passionately to his bosom and the vision was dissolved sometimes his dreams presented the image of his favorite madonna and he fancied that he was kneeling before her as he offered up his vows to her the eyes of the figure seemed to beam on him with inexpressible sweetness he pressed his lips to hers and found them warm. The animated form started from the canvas, embraced him affectionately, and his senses were unable to support delight so exquisite. Such were the scenes on which his thoughts were employed while sleeping. His unsatisfied desires placed before him the most lustful and provoking images, and he rioted in joys till then unknown to him. He started from his couch, filled with confusion at the remembrance of his dreams scarcely was he less ashamed when he reflected on his reasons of the former night which induced him to authorize matilda's stay the cloud was now dissipated which had obscured his judgment he shuddered when he beheld his arguments blazoned in their proper colors and found that he had been a slave to flattery to avarice and self-love if in one hour's conversation matilda had produced a change so remarkable in his sentiments what had he not to dread from her remaining in the abbey become sensible of his danger awakened from his dream of confidence he resolved to insist on her departing without delay he began to feel that he was not proof against temptation and that however matilda might restrain herself within the bounds of modesty he was unable to contend with those passions from which he falsely thought himself exempted. "'Agnes, Agnes!' he exclaimed, while reflecting on his embarrassments. "'I already feel thy curse.' He quitted his cell, 
determined upon dismissing the feigned Rosario. He appeared at Maton's, but his thoughts were absent, and he paid them but little attention. His head and brain were both of them filled with worldly objects, and he prayed without devotion. The service over, he descended into the garden. He bent his steps towards the same spot where, on the preceding night, he had made this embarrassing discovery. He doubted not that Matilda would seek him there. He was not deceived. She soon entered the hermitage and approached the monk with a timid air. After a few minutes, during which both were silent, she appeared as if on the point of speaking, but the abbot, who during this time had been summoning up all his resolution, hastily interrupted her. Though still unconscious how extensive was its influence, he dreaded the melodious seduction of her voice. "'Seat yourself by my side, Matilda,' said he, assuming a look of firmness, though carefully avoiding the least mixture of severity. "'Listen to me patiently, and believe that in what I shall say I am not more influenced by my own interests than by yours. Believe that I feel for you the warmest friendship, the truest compassion, and that you cannot feel more grieved than I do when I declare to you that we must never meet again. Ambrosio, she cried, in a voice at once expressive both of surprise and of sorrow. Be calm, my friend, my Rosario. Still let me call you by that name so dear to me. Our separation is unavoidable. I blush to own how sensibly it affects me. But yet it must be so. I feel myself incapable of treating you with indifference, and that very conviction obliges me to insist upon your departure. Matilda, you must stay here no longer. Oh, where shall I now seek for probity? Disgusted with a perfidious world, in what happy region does truth conceal itself? Father, I hoped that she resided here. I thought that your bosom had been her favorite shrine. And you, too, prove false? Oh, God! And you, too, can betray me? Matilda! Yes, Father, yes, tis with justice that I reproach you. Oh, where are your promises? My novitiate is not expired, and yet will you compel me to quit the monastery? Can you have the heart to drive me from you? And have I not received your solemn oath to the contrary? I will not compel you to quit the monastery. You have received my solemn oath to the contrary. But yet, when I throw myself upon your generosity, when I declare to you the embarrassments in which your presence involves me, will you not release me from that oath? Reflect upon the danger of a discovery, upon the opprobrium in which such an event would plunge me. Reflect that my honor and reputation are at stake, and that my peace of mind depends on your compliance. As yet my heart is free. I shall separate from you with regret, but not with despair. Stay here, and a few weeks will sacrifice my happiness on the altar of your charms. You are but too interesting, too amiable. I should love you. I should dote on you. My bosom would become the prey of desires which honor and my profession forbid me to gratify. If I resisted them, the impetuosity of my wishes unsatisfied would drive me to madness. 
if i yielded to the temptation i should sacrifice to one moment of guilty pleasure my reputation in this world my salvation in the next to you then i fly for defence against myself preserve me from losing the reward of thirty years of suffering preserve me from becoming the victim of remorse your heart has already felt the anguish of hopeless love oh then if you really value me spare mine that anguish give me back my promise fly from these walls go and you bear with you my warmest prayers for your happiness my friendship my esteem and admiration stay and you become to me the source of danger of sufferings of despair answer me matilda what is your resolve she was silent will you not speak matilda will you not name your choice cruel cruel she exclaimed wringing her hands in agony you know too well that you offer me no choice you know too well that i can have no will but yours i was not then deceived matilda's generosity equals my expectations yes i will prove the truth of my affection by submitting to a decree which cuts me to the very heart take back your promise i will quit the monastery this very day i have a relation abbess of a convent in estramadura to her will i bend my steps and shut myself from the world forever yet tell me father shall i bear your good wishes with me to my solitude will you sometimes abstract your attention from heavenly objects to bestow a thought upon me ah matilda i fear that i shall think on you too often for my repose then i have nothing more to wish for save that we may meet in heaven farewell my friend my ambrosio and yet methinks i would fain bear with me some token of your regard what shall i give you something anything one of those flowers will be sufficient here she pointed to a bush of roses planted at the door of the grotto i will hide it in my bosom and when i am dead the nun shall find it withered upon my heart the friar was unable to reply with slow steps and a soul heavy with affliction he quitted the hermitage he approached the bush and stooped to pluck one of the roses suddenly he uttered a piercing cry started back hastily and let the flower which he already held fall from his hand matilda heard the shriek and flew anxiously towards him what is the matter she cried answer me for god's sake what has happened i have received my death he replied in a faint voice concealed among the roses a serpent here the pain of his wound became so exquisite that nature was unable to bear it his senses abandoned him and he sank inanimate into matilda's arms her distress was beyond the power of description she rent her hair beat her bosom and not daring to quit ambrosio endeavored by loud cries to summon the monks to her assistance she at length succeeded alarmed by her shrieks several of the brothers hastened to the spot and the superior was conveyed back to the abbey 
He was immediately put to bed, and the monk who officiated as surgeon to the fraternity prepared to examine the wound. By this time Ambrosio's hand had swelled to an enormous size. The remedies which had been administered to him, tis true, restored him to life, but not to his senses. He raved in all the horrors of delirium, foamed at the mouth, and four of the strongest monks were scarcely able to hold him in his bed. Father Pablos, such was the surgeon's name, hastened to examine the wounded hand. The monks surrounded the bed, anxiously waiting for the decision. Among these, the feigned Rosario appeared not the most insensible to the friar's calamity. He gazed upon the sufferer with inexpressible anguish, and his groans, which every moment escaped from his bosom, sufficiently betrayed the violence of his affliction. Father Pablos probed the wound. As he drew out his instrument, its point was tinged with a greenish hue. He shook his head mournfully, and quitted the bedside. "'Tis as I feared,' said he. "'There is no hope.' "'No hope?' exclaimed the monks, with one voice. "'Say you no hope?' From the sudden effects, I suspected that the abbot was stung by a sienti pedro. The venom which you see upon my instrument confirms my idea. He cannot live three days. Footnote. The sienti pedro is supposed to be a native of Cuba, and to have been brought into Spain from that island in the vessel of Columbus. End of footnote. And can no possible remedy be found? inquired Rosario. Without extracting the poison, he cannot recover, and how to extract it is to me still a secret. All that I can do is to apply such herbs to the wound as will relieve the anguish. The patient will be restored to his senses, but the venom will corrupt the whole mass of his blood, and in three days he will exist no longer. Excessive was the universal grief at hearing this decision. Pablos, as he had promised, dressed the wound and then retired, followed by his companions. Rosario alone remained in the cell, the abbot, at his urgent entreaty, having been committed to his care. Ambrosio's strength, worn out by the violence of his exertions, he had by this time fallen into a profound sleep. So totally was he overcome by weariness that he scarcely gave any signs of life. He was still in this situation when the monks returned to inquire whether any change had taken place. Pablos loosened the bandage which concealed the wound, more from a principle of curiosity than from indulging the hope of discovering any favorable symptoms. What was his astonishment at finding that the inflammation had totally subsided? He probed the hand. His instrument came out pure and unsullied. No traces of the venom were perceptible, and had not the orifice still been visible, Pablos might have doubted that there had ever been a wound. He communicated this intelligence to his brethren. Their delight was only equaled by their surprise. From the latter sentiment, however, they were soon released, by explaining the circumstance according to their own ideas. They were perfectly convinced that their superior was a saint, and thought that nothing could be more natural than for St. Francis to have operated a miracle in his favor. This opinion was adopted unanimously. They declared it so loudly, and vociferated, A miracle! A miracle! with such fervor, 
that they soon interrupted Ambrosio's slumbers. The monks immediately crowded round his bed and expressed their satisfaction at his wonderful recovery. He was perfectly in his senses and free from every complaint, except feeling weak and languid. Pablos gave him a strengthening medicine and advised his keeping his bed for the two succeeding days. He then retired, having desired his patient not to exhaust himself by conversation, but rather to endeavor at taking some repose. The other monks followed his example, and the abbot and Rosario were left without observers. For some minutes, Ambrosio regarded his attendant with a look of mingled pleasure and apprehension. She was seated upon the side of the bed, her head bending down, and, as usual, enveloped in the cowl of her habit. "'And you are still here, Matilda?' said the friar at length. Are you not satisfied with having so nearly effected my destruction that nothing but a miracle could have saved me from the grave? Ah, surely heaven sent that serpent to punish. Matilda interrupted him by putting her hand before his lips with an air of gaiety. Hush, father, hush. You must not talk. He who imposed that order knew not how interesting are the subjects on which I wish to speak. But I know it and yet issue the same positive command. I am appointed your nurse, and you must not disobey my orders. You are in spirits, Matilda. Well, may I be so. I have just received a pleasure unexampled through my whole life. What was that pleasure? What I must conceal from all, but most from you. But most from me? Nay, then, I entreat you, Matilda. "'Hush, father, hush. You must not talk. But, as you do not seem inclined to sleep, shall I endeavor to amuse you with my harp?' "'How? I knew not that you understood music.' "'Oh, I am a sorry performer. Yet, as silence is prescribed you for eight and forty hours, I may possibly entertain you, when wearied of your own reflections. I go to fetch my harp.' She soon returned with it. Now, father, what shall I sing? Will you hear the ballad which treats of the gallant Durandarte, who died in the famous battle of Roncevalles? What you please, Matilda. Oh, call me not Matilda. Call me Rosario. Call me your friend. Those are the names which I love to hear from your lips. Now, listen. She then turned her harp and afterwards preluded for some moments with such exquisite taste as to prove her a perfect mistress of the instrument. The air which she played was soft and plaintive. Ambrosio, while he listened, felt his uneasiness subside, and a pleasing melancholy spread itself into his bosom. Suddenly Matilda changed the strain. With an hand bold and rapid, she struck a few loud martial chords and then chanted the following ballad to an air at once simple and melodious. Durandarte and Belerma Sad and fearful is the story of the Roncevalles fight. On those fatal plains of glory perished many a gallant knight. There fell Durandarte, never verse a nobler chieftain named. He, before his lips forever closed in silence, thus exclaimed, O Belerma, O my dear one, 
for my pain and pleasure born seven long years i served thee fair one seven long years my fee was scorn and when now thy heart replying to my wishes burns like mine cruel fate my bliss denying bids me every hope resign ah though young i fall believe me death would never claim a sigh tis to lose thee tis to leave thee makes me think it hard to die o oh, my cousin montesinos by that friendship firm and dear which from youth has lived between us now my last petition here when my soul these limbs forsaking eager seeks a pure air from my breast the cold heart taking give it to belerma's care say i of my land's possessor named her with my dying breath say my lips i opt to bless her ere they closed for i in death twice a week too how sincerely i adored her cousin say twice a week for one who dearly loved her cousin bid her pray montesinos now the hour marked by fate is near at hand lo my arm has lost its power lo i drop my trusty brand eyes which forth beheld me going homewards ne'er shall see me high cousin stop those tears o'erflowing let me on thy bosom die thy kind hand my eyelids closing yet one favour i implore pray thou for my soul's reposing when my heart shall throb no more so shall jesus still attending gracious to a christian's vow pleased accept my ghost ascending and a seat in heaven allow thus spoke gallant durandarte soon his brave heart broke in twain greatly joyed the moorish party that the gallant knight was slain bitter weeping montesinos took from him his helm and glaive bitter weeping montesinos dug his gallant cousin's grave to perform his promise made he cut the heart from out the breast that belerma wretched lady might receive the last bequest sad was montesinos's heart he felt distress his bosom rend oh my cousin durandarte woe is me to view thy end sweet in manners fair in favour mild in temper fierce in fight warrior nobler gentler braver never shall behold the light cousin lo my tears bedew thee how shall i thy loss survive durandarte he who slew thee wherefore left he me alive while she sang ambrosio listened with delight never had he heard a voice more harmonious and he wondered how such heavenly sounds could be produced by any but angels but though he indulged the sense of hearing a single look convinced him that he must not trust to that of sight the songstress sat at a little distance from his bed the attitude in which she bent over her harp was easy and graceful her cowl had fallen backwarder than usual two coral lips were visible ripe 
fresh and melting, and a chin in whose dimples seemed to lurk a thousand cupids. Her habit's long sleeve would have swept along the cords of the instrument. To prevent this inconvenience, she had drawn it above her elbow, and by this means an arm was discovered, formed in the most perfect symmetry, the delicacy of whose skin might have contended with snow and whiteness. Ambrosio dared to look on her but once. That glance sufficed to convince him how dangerous was the presence of this seducing object. He closed his eyes, but strove in vain to banish her from his thought. There she still moved before him, adorned with all those charms which his heated imagination could supply. Every beauty which he had seen appeared embellished, and those still concealed, fancy represented to him in glowing colors. Still, however, his vows, and the necessity of keeping to them, were present to his memory. He struggled with desire, and shuddered when he beheld how deep was the precipice before him. Matilda ceased to sing. Dreading the influence of her charms, Ambrosio remained with his eyes closed and offered up his prayers to St. Francis to assist him in this dangerous trial. Matilda believed that he was sleeping. She rose from her seat, approached the bed softly, and for some minutes gazed upon him attentively. He sleeps, said she at length in a low voice, but whose accents the abbot distinguished perfectly. Now then I may gaze upon him without offense. I may mix my breath with his. I may dote upon his features, and he cannot suspect me of impurity and deceit. He fears my seducing him to the violation of his vows. Oh, the unjust! Were it my wish to excite desire, should I conceal my features from him so carefully, those features of which I daily hear him? She stopped, and was lost in her reflections. It was but yesterday, she continued, but a few short hours have passed since I was dear to him. He esteemed me, and my heart was satisfied. Now, oh now, how cruelly is my situation changed! He looks on me with suspicion. He bids me leave him, leave him forever. Oh, you, my saint, my idol, you holding the next place to God in my breast. Yet two days, and my heart will be unveiled to you. Could you know my feelings when I beheld your agony? Could you know how much your sufferings have endeared you to me? But the time will come when you will be convinced that my passion is pure and disinterested. Then you will pity me, and feel the whole weight of these sorrows. As she said this, her voice was choked by weeping. While she bent over Ambrosio, a tear fell upon his cheek. Ah, I have disturbed him, cried Matilda, and retreated hastily. Her alarm was ungrounded. None sleep so profoundly as those who are determined not to wake. The friar was in this predicament. He still seemed buried in a repose, which every succeeding minute rendered him less capable of enjoying. The burning tear had communicated its warmth to his heart. What affection! What purity! said he internally. Ah, since my bosom is thus sensible of pity, what would it be if agitated by love? Matilda again quitted her seat and retired to some distance from the bed. 
Ambrosio ventured to open his eyes and to cast them upon her fearfully. Her face was turned from him. She rested her head in a melancholy posture upon her harp and gazed on the picture which hung opposite to the bed. Happy, happy image! Thus did she address the beautiful Madonna. Tis to you that he offers his prayers. Tis on you that he gazes with admiration. I thought you would have lightened my sorrows. You have only served to increase their weight. You have made me feel that, had I known him ere his vows were pronounced, ambrosio and happiness might have been mine. With what pleasure he views this picture! With what fervor he addresses his prayers to the insensible image! Ah, may not his sentiments be inspired by some kind and secret genius, friend to my affection? May it not be man's natural instinct which informs him? Be silent, idle hopes. Let me not encourage an idea which takes from the brilliance of Ambrosio's virtue. Tis religion, not beauty, which attracts his admiration. Tis not to the woman, but the divinity that he kneels. Would he but address to me the least tender expression which he pours forth to this Madonna? Would he but say that, were he not already affianced to the church, he would not have despised Matilda? Oh, let me nourish that fond idea. Perhaps he may yet acknowledge that he feels for me more than pity, and that affection like mine might well have deserved a return. Perhaps he may own thus much when I lie on my deathbed. He then need not fear to infringe his vows, and the confession of his regard will soften the pangs of dying. Would I were sure of this? Oh, how earnestly should I sigh for the moment of disillusion! Of this discourse, the abbot lost not a syllable, and the tone in which she pronounced these last words pierced to his heart. Involuntarily he raised himself from his pillow. Matilda, he said in a troubled voice, Oh, my Matilda! She started at the sound and turned towards him hastily. The suddenness of her movement made her cowl fall back from her head. Her features became visible to the monk's inquiring eye. What was his amazement at beholding the exact resemblance of his admired Madonna? The same exquisite proportion of features, the same profusion of golden hair, the same rosy lips, heavenly eyes, and majesty of countenance adorn Matilda. Uttering an exclamation of surprise, Ambrosio sank back upon his pillow, and doubted whether the object before him was mortal or divine. Matilda seemed penetrated with confusion. She remained motionless in her place, and supported herself upon her instrument. Her eyes were bent upon the earth, and her fair cheeks overspread with blushes. On recovering herself, her first action was to conceal her features. She then, in an unsteady and troubled voice, ventured to address these words to the friar. Accident has made you master of a secret which I never would have revealed but on the bed of death. Yes, Ambrosio, in Matilda de Vianegas, you see the original of your beloved Madonna. Soon after I conceived my unfortunate passion, I formed the project of conveying to you my picture. Crowds of admirers had persuaded me that I possessed some beauty, 
and I was anxious to know what effect it would produce upon you. I caused my portrait to be drawn by Martin Galuppi, a celebrated Venetian at that time resident in Madrid. The resemblance was striking. I sent it to the Capuchin Abbey, as if for sale, and the Jew from whom you bought it was one of my emissaries. You purchased it. Judge of my rapture when informed that you had gazed upon it with delight, or rather with adoration, that you had suspended it in your cell, and that you addressed your supplications to no other saint. Will this discovery make me still more regarded as an object of suspicion? Rather should it convince you how pure is my affection, and engage you to suffer me in your society and esteem. I heard you daily extol the praises of my portrait. I was an eye-witness of the transports which its beauty excited in you. Yet I forbore to use against your virtue those arms with which yourself had furnished me. I concealed those features from your sight which you loved unconsciously. I strove not to excite desire by displaying my charms, or to make myself mistress of your heart through the medium of your senses. To attract your notice by studiously attending to religious duties, to endear myself to you by convincing you that my mind was virtuous and my attachment sincere, such was my only aim. I succeeded. I became your companion and your friend. I concealed my sex from your knowledge, and had you not pressed me to reveal my secret, had I not been tormented by the fear of a discovery, never had you known me for any other than Rosario. And still are you resolved to drive me from you? The few hours of life which yet remain for me, may I not pass them in your presence? Oh, speak, Ambrosio, and tell me that I may stay. This speech gave the abbot an opportunity of recollecting himself. He was conscious that, in the present disposition of his mind, avoiding her society was his only refuge from the power of this enchanting woman. "'Your declaration has so much astonished me,' said he, "'that I am at present incapable of answering you. "'Do not insist upon a reply. "'Matilda, leave me to myself. "'I have need to be alone.' I obey you, but before I go, promise not to insist upon my quitting the abbey immediately. Matilda, reflect upon your situation, reflect upon the consequences of your stay. Our separation is indispensable, and we must part. But not today, father. Oh, in pity, not today. You press me too hard, but I cannot resist that tone of supplication. Since you insist upon it, I yield to your prayer. I consent to your remaining here a sufficient time to prepare, in some measure, the brethren for your departure. Stay yet two days, but on the third, he sighed involuntarily. Remember that on the third we must part forever. She caught his hand eagerly and pressed it to her lips. On the third, she exclaimed with an air of wild solemnity, you are right, father, you are right. On the third we must part forever. There was a dreadful expression in her eye as she uttered these words which penetrated the friar's soul with horror. Again she kissed his hand and then fled with rapidity from the chamber. Anxious to authorize the presence of his dangerous guest, yet conscious that her state was infringing the laws of his order, 
Ambrosio's bosom became the theater of a thousand contending passions. At length his attachment to the feigned Rosario, aided by the natural warmth of his temperament, seemed likely to obtain the victory. The success was assured when that presumption which formed the groundwork of his character came to Matilda's assistance. The monk reflected that to vanquish temptation was an infinitely greater merit than to avoid it. He thought that he ought rather to rejoice in the opportunity given him of proving the firmness of his virtue. St. Anthony had withstood all seductions to lust. Then why should not he? Besides, St. Anthony was tempted by the devil, who put every art into practice to excite his passions, whereas Ambrosio's danger proceeded from a mere mortal woman, fearful and modest, whose apprehensions of his yielding were not less violent than his own. Yes, said he, the unfortunate shall stay. I have nothing to fear from her presence. Even should my own prove too weak to resist the temptation, I am secured from danger by the innocence of Matilda. Ambrosio was yet to learn that, to a heart unacquainted with her, vice is ever most dangerous when lurking behind the mask of virtue. He found himself so perfectly recovered that, when Father Pablos visited him again at night, he entreated permission to quit his chamber on the day following. His request was granted. Matilda appeared no more that evening except in company with the monks when they came in a body to inquire after the abbot's health. She seemed fearful of conversing with him in private, and stayed but a few minutes in his room. The friar slept well, but the dreams of the former night were repeated, and his sensations of voluptuousness were yet more keen and exquisite. The same lust-exciting visions floated before his eyes. Matilda, in all the pomp of beauty, warm, tender, and luxurious, clasped him to her bosom, and lavished upon him the most ardent caresses. He returned them as eagerly, and already was on the point of satisfying his desires when the faithless form disappeared, and left him to all the horrors of shame and disappointment. The morning dawned. Fatigued, harassed, and exhausted by his provoking dreams, he was not disposed to quit his bed. He excused himself from appearing at Maton's. It was the first morning in his life that he had ever missed them. He rose late. During the whole of the day he had no opportunity of speaking to Matilda without witnesses. His cell was thronged by the monks, anxious to express their concern at his illness, and he was still occupied in receiving their compliments on his recovery when the bell summoned them to the refectory. After dinner, the monks separated and dispersed themselves in various parts of the garden, where the shade of trees or retirement of some grotto presented the most agreeable means of enjoying the siesta. The abbot bent his steps towards the hermitage. A glance of his eye invited Matilda to accompany him. She obeyed and followed him thither in silence. They entered the grotto and seated themselves. Both seemed unwilling to begin the conversation and to labor under the influence of mutual embarrassment. At length the abbot spoke. He conversed only on indifferent topics, and Matilda answered him in the same tone. She seemed anxious to make him forget that the person who sat by him was any other than Rosario. Neither of them dared, nor indeed wished, to make an allusion to the subject which was most at the heart of both. 
Matilda's efforts to appear gay were evidently forced. Her spirits were oppressed by the weight of anxiety, and when she spoke her voice was low and feeble. She seemed desirous of finishing a conversation which embarrassed her, and complaining that she was unwell, she requested Ambrosio's permission to return to the abbey. He accompanied her to the door of her cell, and, when arrived there, he stopped her to declare his consent to her continuing the partner of his solitude, so long as should be agreeable to herself. She discovered no marks of pleasure at receiving this intelligence, though on the preceding day she had been so anxious to obtain the permission. "'Alas, father,' she said, waving her head mournfully, "'your kindness comes too late. My doom is fixed. We must separate forever.' Yet believe that I am grateful for your generosity, for your compassion of an unfortunate who is but too little deserving of it. She put her handkerchief to her eyes. Her cowl was only half drawn over her face. Ambrosio observed that she was pale, and her eyes sunk and heavy. Good God, he cried, you are very ill, Matilda. I shall send Father Pablos to you instantly. No, do not. I am ill, tis true, but he cannot cure my malady. Farewell, father. Remember me in your prayers to-morrow, while I shall remember you in heaven. She entered her cell and closed the door. The abbot dispatched to her the physician without losing a moment, and waited his report impatiently. But Father Pablo soon returned and declared that his errand had been fruitless. Rosario refused to admit him, and had positively rejected his offers of assistance. The uneasiness which this account gave Ambrosio was not trifling, yet he determined that Matilda should have her own way for that night, but that if her situation did not mend by the morning, he would insist upon her taking the advice of Father Pablos. He did not find himself inclined to sleep. He opened his casement, and gazed upon the moonbeams as they played upon the small stream whose waters bathed the walls of the monastery. The coolness of the night breeze and tranquillity of the hour inspired the friar's mind with sadness. He thought upon Matilda's beauty and affection, upon the pleasures which he might have shared with her, had he not been restrained by monastic fetters. He reflected that, unsustained by hope, her love for him could not long exist, that doubtless she would succeed in extinguishing her passion and seek for happiness in the arms of one more fortunate. He shuddered at the void which her absence would leave in his bosom. He looked with disgust on the monotony of a convent, and breathed a sigh towards that world from which he was forever separated. Such were the reflections when a loud knocking at his door interrupted. The bell of the church had already struck two. The abbot hastened to inquire the cause of this disturbance. He opened the door of his cell, and a lay-brother entered whose looks declared his hurry and confusion. "'Hasten, reverend father,' said he, "'hasten to the young Rosario. He earnestly requests to see you. He lies at the point of death.' "'Gracious God! Where is Father Pablos? Why is he not with him? Oh, I fear, I fear! Father Pablos has seen him, but his art can do nothing. He says that he suspects the youth to be poisoned.' "'Poisoned? Oh, the unfortunate—' It is, then, as I suspected. But let me not lose a moment. Perhaps it may yet be time to save her. He said, and flew towards the cell of the novice. Several monks were already in the chamber. 
Father Pablos was one of them, and held a medicine in his hand which he was endeavoring to persuade Rosario to swallow. The others were employed in admiring the patient's divine countenance, which they now saw for the first time. She looked lovelier than ever. She was no longer pale or languid. A bright glow had spread itself over her cheeks. Her eyes sparkled with a serene delight, and her countenance was expressive of confidence and resignation. "'Oh, torment me no more,' was she saying to Pablos, when the terrified abbot rushed hastily into the cell. "'My disease is far beyond the reach of your skill, and I wish not to be cured of it.' Then, perceiving Ambrosio, "'Ah, tis he,' she cried. "'I see him once again before we part forever. "'Leave me, my brethren. "'Much have I to tell this holy man in private.' The monks retired immediately, and Matilda and the abbot remained together. "'What have you done, imprudent woman?' exclaimed the latter as soon as they were left alone. "'Tell me, are my suspicions just? "'Am I indeed to lose you? "'Has your own hand been the instrument of your destruction?' She smiled and grasped his hand. "'In what have I been imprudent, father? "'I have sacrificed a pebble and saved a diamond.' My death preserves a life valuable to the world and more dear to me than my own. Yes, father, I am poisoned. But know that the poison once circulated in your veins. Matilda? What I tell you I resolve never to discover to you but on the bed of death. That moment is now arrived. You cannot have forgotten the day already when your life was endangered by the bite of a Cienti Pedro. The physician gave you over, declaring himself ignorant how to extract the venom. I knew but of one means, and hesitated not a moment to employ it. I was left alone with you. You slept. I loosened the bandage from your hand. I kissed the wound and drew out the poison with my lips. The effect has been more sudden than I expected. I feel death at my heart. Yet an hour, and I shall be in a better world. "'Almighty God!' exclaimed the abbot, and sank almost lifeless upon the bed. After a few minutes he again raised himself up suddenly, and gazed upon Matilda with all the wildness of despair. "'And you have sacrificed yourself for me. You die, and die to preserve Ambrosio. And is there indeed no remedy, Matilda? And is there indeed no hope? Speak to me.' Oh, speak to me. Tell me that you have still the means of life. Be comforted, my only friend. Yes, I have still the means of life in my power, but it is a means which I dare not employ. It is dangerous. It is dreadful. Life would be purchased at too dear a rate, unless it were permitted me to live for you. Then live for me, Matilda, for me and gratitude. He caught her hand and pressed it rapturously to his lips. Remember our late conversations. I now consent to everything. Remember in what lively colors you describe the union of souls. Be it ours to realize those ideas. Let us forget the distinctions of sex, despise the world's prejudices, and only consider each other as brother and friend. Live then, Matilda. Oh, live for me. Ambrosio, it must not be. When I thought thus, I deceived both you and myself. Either I must die at present, 
or expire by the lingering torments of unsatisfied desire. Oh, since we last conversed together, a dreadful veil has been rent from before my eyes. I love you no longer with the devotion which is paid to a saint. I prize you no more for the virtues of your soul. I lust for the enjoyment of your person. The woman reigns in my bosom, and I am become a prey to the wildest of passions. Away with friendship, tis a cold, unfeeling word. My bosom burns with love, with unutterable love, and love must be its return. Tremble then, Ambrosio, tremble to succeed in your prayers. If I live, your truth, your reputation, your reward of a life past in sufferings, all that you value is irretrievably lost. I shall no longer be able to combat my passions, shall seize every opportunity to excite your desires and labor to affect your dishonor and my own. No, no, Ambrosio, I must not live. I am convinced with every moment that I have but one alternative. I feel with every heart-throb that I must enjoy you or die. Amazement, Matilda! Can it be you who speak to me? He made a movement as if to quit his seat. She uttered a loud shriek, and, raising herself half out of the bed, threw her arms round the friar to detain him. Oh, do not leave me. Listen to my errors with compassion. In a few hours I shall be no more, yet a little, and I am free from this disgraceful passion. Wretched women, what can I say to you? I cannot. I must not. But live, Matilda, oh! Live. You do not reflect on what you ask. What? Live to plunge myself in infamy, to become the agent of hell, to work the destruction both of you and of myself? Feel this heart, father. She took his hand. Confused, embarrassed, and fascinated, he withdrew it not, and felt her heart throb under it. Feel this heart, father. It is yet the seat of honor, truth, and chastity. If it beats tomorrow, it must fall a prey to the blackest crimes. Oh, let me then die today. Let me die while I yet deserve the tears of the virtuous. Thus will I expire. She reclined her head upon his shoulder. Her golden hair poured itself over his chest. Folded in your arms I shall sink to sleep. Your hand shall close my eyes forever, and your lips receive my dying breath. And will you not sometimes think of me? Will you not sometimes shed a tear upon my tomb? Oh, yes, yes, yes! That kiss is my assurance. The hour was night. All was silence around. The faint beams of a solitary lamp darted upon Matilda's figure, and shed through the chamber a dim, mysterious light. No prying eye or curious ear was near the lovers. Nothing was heard but Matilda's melodious accents. Ambrosio was in the full vigor of manhood. He saw before him a young and beautiful woman, the preserver of his life, the adorer of his person, and whom affection for him had reduced to the brink of the grave. He sat upon her bed, his hand rested upon her bosom, her head inclined voluptuously upon his breast. Who then can wonder if he yielded to the temptation? 
Drunk with desire, he pressed his lips to those which sought them. His kisses vied with Matilda's in warmth and passion. He clasped her rapturously in his arms. He forgot his vows, his sanctity, and his fame. He remembered nothing but the pleasure and opportunity. Ambrosio, oh, my Ambrosio, sighed Matilda. Thine, ever thine, murmured the friar, and sank upon her bosom. End of chapter 2, part 2 Recording by James K. White, Chula Vista